In previous sermons by Pastor John and Pastor Tim and last week, we learned about the Word, who was God, that was made flesh and dwelled among his creation. A creation that, though was created through him, denied and rejected him and desired to live apart from him. From his fullness, God's people received an alternative way to righteousness. Grace and truth as opposed to the law from Moses and its un unachievable requirements. For an arrival as important as this, we learned of the messenger, John the Baptist, whom God set apart and prepared to herald the coming of Jesus Christ, who is God's word made flesh. Last week, we focused on who John was and what his mission was, and today, we will hear the content of that message. Today's text from John's Gospel continues the story of Jesus' baptism story from a different perspective. Here, the focus is on John the Baptist and his prophetic role in announcing Jesus as the promised Messiah. What I'd like for us to primarily focus on this morning is the description John uses of Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Our scripture reading this morning is from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 29 through 34, which I will read right now. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and remain on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Let us pray. Lord, as we come to you, to your word, along with the psalmist, we ask you to teach us the way of your statutes that we might keep them to the end. Give us understanding that we may follow your word and observe it. Excuse me. <clears throat> and observe it with our whole hearts. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to our own selfish ends. Turn our eyes and attention, turn our eyes and attention from being frivolous and doing frivolous things, Lord, and give us life through your word. Father, grant us this, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So in our short passage this morning, John once again crams a lot, a lot of content into this. One commentator, after discussing the paragraph, just six verses, says this. When we look back on the wealth and depth of the material contained in the intervening verses, we appreciate John's genius at incorporating a whole Christology in one brief scene. We again will have to limit the scope of what we can focus on. And as we do, we will use verse 29 as the lens through which we view the rest of the passage. And as we do that, we'll also need to be aware, and I think Pastor John has mentioned this before, that there are two speakers here, 
and we are hearing from, that we're hearing from at once. One is John the Baptist, who is being described and quoted in this passage. The other is John the Apostle, who, was, who has written this passage. So we have two different Johns speaking in, a way that, that in ways that are distinct, that are identical, but which will ultimately harmonize with, with one another, not clashing. So behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, is what John the Baptist yelled as he saw Jesus coming. Picture it because this is an outstanding moment. And I'm very visual. When I read scripture, I, if, if there's any way I can visualize it, I do. If there's any way I can go back in the Bible and find a picture or something, I do. Because I'm very visual when I'm learning. So he goes, picture it because this is an outstanding moment. Jesus is walking toward him when he yells this amazing phrase to everyone within hearing distance, which undoubtedly must have startled those present. This is spectacular because of the connotation that the Lamb of God would mean. Many years before God had, de many years before, God had declared that he would send one who would be a sacrifice for the sin of the people. We read in Isaiah 53, as Pastor John just read, and I'm going to read it again. Um, it's chapter, uh, chapter 53, verses 10 to 11. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By, this, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Jesus came and would be crushed by his own father for us. And I know most of us think of that. But picture it with me. A father lashing out with all anger against his own son. Can you imagine that? You fathers out here just, you know, doing that. But that's what God did for us to redeem us to himself. He would make an offering for guilt, namely our guilt, it will be out of the anguish of Christ that many will be accounted as righteous. And it, would be, and it would one day soon be that Jesus would bear their iniquities. Day after day, lambs were slain because of the guilt of God's people. Day after day, priests would slit the throats, excuse the graphics, the throats of lambs and slaughter them as a symbol of the crushing of the sun that would one day occur. We like sheep have gone astray, but our sins were placed upon him, Jesus Christ. Jesus came as the ultimate sacrifice. He was the ultimate sin bearer. He was the ultimate wrath bearer that all of these sacrifices pointed to. Jesus was and is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
When John addressed Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John was speaking to Israel. Israel was God's chosen people whom he covenant with to be their God, who he meaning God, covenant with to be their God and they to be his people. And so the coming of Jesus is proof that God is faithful to his covenantal promise that he made to Israel. Okay, God is always faithful. To appreciate what this means, we need to go back to the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus. That's where we get the biggest dose of offerings and sacrifices. In a word, Jews are taught to offer sacrifices for just about every aspect of life. For example, there were burnt offerings, grain offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings, wave offerings, thank offerings, elevation offerings, ordination offerings, and offerings of well-being. I may have missed a couple, but you get, you get the gist. A lot of offerings, okay? Um, sacrifices were necessary in order to make these in order to make these offerings, sacrificial animals, including bulls, cattle, calves, oxen, rams, goats, sheep, pigeons, turtle doves, those were included in all the sacrifices. So naturally, when an animal was sacrificed, there was a lot of bloodshed. The blood was taught to have a special effect in appeasing God. In some instances, the Torah stipulated that not only was the animal to be burned as a pleasing odor to the Lord. Okay, whenever I read about, you know, rams and stuff, I I can't help but think of grilling and barbecue, and it just comes to mind. Sorry about that. Uh, um, Where am I? The priest was to dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times on the curtain behind the altar. In other instances, he was to place blood in the horns, on the horns of the altar. And at other times, he was to pour blood out on the ground in front of the altar. Lambs were commonly used in ritual sacrifice, and when a lamb was specified, it was to be a lamb without blemish. And I think Pastor John has hit on this many times before. Sometimes a single lamb would be sacrificed, and at other times it could be up as, to as many as 12. As we consider these ritual sacrifices and the ultimate sacrifice, Let's consider what Isaiah says in, again, chapter 53, verse 4 through 6, that Pastor John read earlier. Surely he has borne our sickness and carried our suffering. Yet we considered him plague, struck by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought our peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has turned to his own way. And the Lord, Yahweh, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And as we think about these sacrifices, let's consider, as we consider sacrifices, the first passage we turn to is that of the sacrifice of Isaac, found in Genesis 22, verses 7 through 8. God commanded, God commanded, Okay. God commanded Abraham to mount Moriah and sacrifice Isaac, his only son, whom he loves. That's in Genesis uh, 22. 
Abraham was confident that God would provide for himself a lamb for a burnt offering. Though he did not know how at that point, the angel seeing that Abraham feared God provides a ram in place of Isaac. We see here how Abraham displayed faith. He trusted and obeyed God, even if it meant giving up his son, his only son. In a culture that normalized human sacrifice, God stopped Abraham from that. We learn that God does not approve of worship that seeks to appease him with human suffering or effort. God provided the offering and sacrifice that he requires. There's the idea of substitution with the ram standing in for the beloved son of Abraham. So John is emphasizing that Christ's coming is at the cost of God himself. God gave his all. He wants Israel to know and remember that in place of Abraham's one and only son, God gives and provides us a lamb, his beloved son. In place of our own sacrifices, God has provided for himself a lamb. Israel would also be led to think about the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. Blood is required for the purification of the tabernacle. Notice that even the tabernacle, God-inspired and man-made, needs purification because it is in the midst of a sinful nation. It's blemished, okay? The sins of Israel cannot simply be written off. Our sins cannot simply be written off. And Leviticus 16, 20 to 22 also writes about a scapegoat that carried the sins of the people away. The goat bears the iniquities of the people. It is a physical picture of sins being removed from them and being sent out into the wilderness. This is something that they had to keep doing year after year, a constant reminder that the sacrificial system was sufficient only for an allotted time, but was not the ultimate sacrifice that God would require for all eternity. We see from here that the Bible has numerous pictures of that atonement, of what that atonement looks like. God's people didn't understand it as one thing until they see how Christ fulfilled it all. The Lamb of God will bear the entirety of the people's sins and will remove sin from their midst. In doing so, the people will be made clean. There's going to be a lot of repetition here, but I, I pray that the Spirit of God allows you to see that the term Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, packs a real, real punch. It is, it is Christ's mission on earth, the suffering servant, which we will learn about in a minute. Um, where did I leave off? The Lamb of God will, yeah, I did that. Listen to the following quote from John Stott. I think we have, yeah, we do. No, that wasn't it. Okay. The biblical gospel of atonement is of God satisfying himself by substituting himself for us. 
The concept of substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to man alone. The lamb motive was also in Israel's history from the Passover. Every household in Israel, and we've heard this before, was to prepare a year-old lamb without blemish or a goat on the tenth day of the first month. And we see this in Exodus chapter 12. The lamb was slaughtered on the fourteenth day at twilight, and its blood was painted on the doorposts of the houses where it is consumed, where the lamb is eaten. The blood on the doorpost acts as both a sign to the Lord's people and a seal of the Lord's protection from the plague. The redemption of Israel from slavery to Egypt is rooted in this Passover event. This is so important that an event that God commands Israel to reorient their calendars to this event of the Passover. It is the decisive event it is the decisive event that creates a new year and a new way of telling time and served as a memorial day of what God did for his people. The sacrificial lamb, known as the Paschal lamb, was not given to all but only to those who identified themselves as God's people and followed his instruction. So when John the Baptist proclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God, he was awakening them to him, awakening them to him whose arrival reorients their lives. Okay? John is saying, Israel, all life cycles have been rearranged for the singular reason of him. Our Passover festivals have reminded us of what God did, and it looked forward to the Lamb, and he is walking among us now. This is what John is telling them. Okay? Albert Moeller says, the reality of the birth of the Son of God in human flesh is the most decisive event in human history and it's the event of our redemption. The most, think about history, the most important, the most decisive event of history was Christ coming? Was Christ coming to redeem us to himself, to God? This was also a warning to the listeners. Israel, if they were God's people, would do well to identify with him and follow his teachings. I do not like this thing. They were not to lean on their Jewish heritage to excuse them from fully obeying God's command. There will, be the, there will be judgment poured out on sinners, and the Lamb will be judged in place of those who trust in him. And they will turn their lives around. They will reorient their lives and be saved. Last, I mean, 
they will be saved and then reorient their lives. I had that backwards. Lastly, John could have in mind the pictures of the suffering servant. The suffering servant hears the sins of the, of the believing remnant of Israel. And all of this is in Isaiah and in, and in John chapter 12 and Isaiah 53 mostly. He would take on the role of the lamb and die in innocence. John does call the people to behold who is the reminder that all our sin, behold him who is a reminder that all our sins cannot be covered by our own good works. But collectively, what our sins do is they contribute to the pain of Christ. This is something to rejoice about and, and cause us in God's providence and will to treasure Christ. When we think about what Christ has done on the cross for us, and I pray we think about that daily, Okay, it just, it should, it should overwhelm us. It should cause us to stop whatever we're doing that we deem so important that God lays this awesome truth on your heart, on our hearts, and we just continue about our day. It should impact us. Um, These were the implications in the term Lamb of God that John used to address Jesus. Yet he, he also acknowledged a limitation. John said that he himself did not know him. Now, it doesn't mean that John did not know Jesus at all. I thought Jesus, well, according to Pastor Tim, he was like a distant, distant, distant cousin. But I've always known him as a cousin, so I'm going to use it that way. After all, John was his cousin. Um, where am I? Okay. But only that he didn't know him as the coming one. So John knew who Jesus was. He just did not know him. God had not revealed to him yet that Jesus was the one to come. Okay. What many scholars believe is that at this point, the Baptist didn't know that Jesus was the prophesied one. Matthew 11 also tells us that John the Baptist was not, and no Jew, Israel was not prepared for suffering Messiah. That was just out of the spectrum. They, they, they can picture that. Despite not knowing who this Messiah is, John was obedient to God and carried out his work of guiding people to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sin. Today, though, we don't know everything about God. We don't. But we know more than John did. We have the word of God that fleshes out all, fleshes out for us the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. As hearers of the word, how do we respond to what we do know? As hearers of the word, how do we respond to what God has revealed to us in his word? Jesus Christ is not just a good person that lived. He is not just a conjured idea, but he is the worthy sacrifice provided by God at his own cost and pain. This is something to rejoice about. Did I read this already? Yes, I did. I'm sorry. 
Here's what J.C. Riles has to say about Jesus' mission here on earth. Christ did not come on earth to be a conqueror or a philosopher or a mere teacher of morality. He came to save sinners. He did a whole bunch of things while he was here. But the mission was to save us, to redeem us to God the Father. That was his mission, his sole mission. And in that, of course, there were other things, healings and so on. John was the herald, but God also provided a confirmation that Jesus was the Messiah. In John 1, we read of the Spirit descending on Jesus and remained on him. The Baptist had been told by God himself, you know, the one who sent me to baptize with water, who the coming one is. The promised Messiah would be the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize in the Holy Spirit. This is the fulfillment of God's promise to pour out his spirit on the coming Davidic kings. We find that in Isaiah chapter 11. And on the servant of the Lord and prophet figure who announces the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Note, the Spirit not only descends on Jesus, I want us to get this, the Spirit not only descends on Jesus, but he remains on him. We see that in verses 32 and 33. God gives the Spirit of, to Jesus without limit. Our experiences are limited. Christ had the Spirit of God without limit. And I sat there for a minute and I tried to imagine that. And I was overwhelmed, so I kept on going without limit. What, and we saw what the Spirit led Christ was able to do because he was God without limit. The Spirit of Jesus will also baptize people in a different way than John. This phrase appears in all four Gospels and twice more in Acts. Chapter 11, through Jesus, believers, through Jesus, believers will also be filled and empowered with the Spirit in the same way, just not limitless. Okay, we, um, I'll stop there. There's, there's another sermon in that. Um, at Pentecost, the Spirit was poured out on the disciples and believers, first in Jerusalem, in Judea, then in Samaria, and finally to the ends of the world. The point is clear that the baptism of the Holy Spirit is where believers are equipped and empowered by God's Spirit to carry out the task Jesus gave the church. Brothers and sisters, today when we are convicted of our sins and repent and believe in Jesus Christ, we are baptized in the Holy Spirit and equipped with what we need in order to be effective gospel witnesses. I know that some of us here might be from a different denominational background where that's a separate event, but let me go on. If you have accepted Christ, I will repeat this. If you have accepted Christ, he has baptized you with the spirit to give you the words and bring about gospel fruit in his time as you 
as we reach out to others. The Spirit does that for us, among many other things. Working miracles might not be the primary means of God's revelation now in these days, but let's not be distracted from the greatest miracle of all, which is the changing of our hearts, the changing of our hearts. And when we're real with ourselves, we who know ourselves, we know the garbage, the mess that our hearts can produce. And it's scary. For me it is, I don't know about y'all. It is scary, but thank God for his spirit and dwelling constantly reminding us, constantly pulling us away from sin, constantly when we are listening. How has the Spirit equipped you to proclaim the gospel? How can you join in the spread of the gospel from Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth? This is what I hope we'll take, we'll take home with us today. His dying and rising. Did I miss something? I think I did. I'm sorry. Okay. This is what I hope we'll take home with us today. His dying and rising are a paradigm for us to follow. He told his disciples this. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But for whoever will lose his life for my sake, the same will save it. The good news is that God has a plan for each one of us. He really, really does. I need you to hear me. God has a plan for each one of us. It's up to us as Christians, if you're a Christian here today, if you're a servant of the Lord, to tune in, to reorient our lives so that we can hear from God and in obedience submit to that. And I know I'm going to go off script. I know the difficulty of being obedient. I have purposely in the past ignored God because I know what would be required. I didn't want that at the time. But God and his faithfulness and his mercy and his grace pursued me just like he pursued you here today. While you were running away, he pursued you. While you were rejecting him, denying him, he he pursued us. He really, really did. You know, I think about how I pursued my wife. You know, I was a pest. I really was. But God is not a pest in pursuing us. He's pursuing us to redeem us to himself. Because God so loved the world, us, that he gave. He gave all he could give. He gave his only begotten son. <sighs> the good news is that God has a plan for each of us, a destiny to fulfill. 
It's in dying to self that we're born again to eternal life. As we surrender our will to God's good and perfect will for our lives, we will experience the fullness of life God has in store for us. The fullness of life God has in store for us. Only as we are willing to get our own egos out of the way will we be able to experience God and all of his abundance, all of the abundance that he has for us. Charlotte Elliott was a young woman, just a short little story, okay? Charlotte Elliott was a, just a young woman the night she went to some friend's home for dinner. The year was 1835. You recall that year, right, Tim? Okay. The home was in the west end of London. There she met a brash young minister named Cesar Milan. During the course of the meal, he asked her if she were a Christian. She took offense and said she'd rather not discuss the matter. He apologized, and the conversation moved on. Three weeks later, their paths crossed again. This time, it was she who brought it up. She said, ever since he'd act, she said ever since he'd asked the question, she'd been trying to find the Savior, but to no avail. So you tell me, she said, how does one come to Christ? He said simply, just come as you are. That she did, and not long after, she wrote this hymn that we're all familiar with. Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. I come. When John the Baptist saw Jesus coming his way, he told his disciples, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. As you see signs of his presence in the trials and the tribulations of your everyday life, dare, dare to let him in fully into your heart as you experience his fullness. Invite him. Invite him in and experience his fullness. And as you do, let those in your sphere, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to let those in your sphere know who this Christ is. Because he is. He is life. He's everything. He's everything. All the stuff that we have, no, he is everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray we would be a people who trust in the Lamb of God, who was slain for the forgiveness of our sins. I pray that all present would trust in Christ, the one who died for us. Lord, I pray when we feel as if all is lost and that our pile of sins reaches to the heavens, that we would know that Christ died for us and he has taken care of that sin and all sin for that matter. Remind us that he came as the Lamb of God slain for the forgiveness of sin. Lord, my hope and prayer 
for us going forward is that we will individually trust in the one who paid it all for us. Lord, I pray if there's anyone present who has never trusted in your son, your son Jesus Christ, that they would circumvent, that they would avoid the wrath of God which currently hangs over their heads. Father, thank you for your son Jesus who came, lived the perfect life, and died the perfect sacrifice so that we might live. He took our punishment upon himself. Lord, give us strength to respond, to do what John the Baptist called the people to do long ago. Repent, turn from ruining or ruling our own lives and trust in Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray, amen.